Dear Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this time of fellowship together, for the uh, blessings that you bestowed upon us, that we can gather together in freedom and uh, be good stewards of the resources and the time that you give to us, that we can come together in fellowship and in prayer and in the study of your word. Father, we pray this evening as we take this time to look into your word and to continue this uh, study on this most important subject of soteriology, that this will be a time in which we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand the biblical text. We pray that we will be challenged by the things that we study, that we might grow thereby. Father, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I will get us started here on Facebook, so that way we are live streaming. We have a mixed audience from week to week. Sometimes it's more than others. That's all right. Those that are positive will show up. Uh, And those uh, who aren't able to show up can watch the lesson a little bit later. All right, I've switched everything over here, so everybody should be able to see what I see on the screen. I assume we're live streaming, unless Dan tells me otherwise. All right, so we are continuing our study in soteriology. Uh, Soteriology, as you remember, is the study of salvation uh, from the Greek word soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about. And uh, we've been cranking right along in our lessons. We are currently uh, looking at the suffering, crucifixion, and death of Christ. Uh, Tonight's lesson should uh, put a bow on this uh, set of lessons that we've been discussing, and we will jump into some word analysis for the next few months. I've got my notes together. I don't remember how many pages it is, 40, 50, 60, somewhere in there. Uh, I'm up to about 185 pages right now in my notes, so I'm clipping along, making some good progress on that, but hopefully we'll be able to finish this section this evening. So let's go ahead and get started. There'll be lots of scripture references, and a lot of it is in the notes. I did have to email uh, an updated version of the notes. And for those that are present, uh, I printed a copy for you. But for those who are online, uh, I had to email uh, an updated version because I added some scripture in there. We may chase a few scripture references along the way. So Jesus' suffering and death on the cross has both infinite and eternal value for both God the Father as well as those who trust in Christ as their Savior. Now, remember that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, constitutes his victory over sin and death. And as the one who is victorious over sin and death, uh, he also has blessed us with many uh, blessings. And these come to us because uh, Christ has been victorious, and he showers us with many blessings as a result of his victory. And so that's part of what we're going to be looking at tonight. So we're looking at this from two angles. We're looking at it from, in one sense, from the divine side of, of what the cross of Christ accomplished. What was, how was it valuable to the Father? Well, it propitiated the Father. And remember, the word propitiation uh, just simply means satisfaction. That God the Father is satisfied with the work of Christ upon the cross. That he has atoned for our sins. And remember that the death of Christ was a penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Penal, he bore the penalty for our sins. Substitutionary, he died in our place. Peter tells us that he died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 
And it was an atoning sacrifice in that his shed blood upon the cross atoned for our sins and is the basis for our forgiveness uh, because his shed blood has redeemed us. In fact, the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm uh, that the Father accepts. It's the only coin of the heavenly realm that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. Nothing else will work. And so from the divine side, God the Father is satisfied. He is propitiated with the work of Christ. But on the human side, we not only receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the gift of righteousness, but we also receive a wonderful portfolio of spiritual assets. And uh, there are many blessings that come to us as Christians. And uh, that's part of what this lesson tonight is going to cover. So again, Jesus' suffering and death on the cross has both infinite and eternal value for both God the Father as well as those who trust in Christ as their Savior. According to Francis Schaeffer, quote, Christ's death in space-time history is completely adequate to meet our need for refuge from the true moral guilt that we have. It is final because of who he is. He is the infinite second person of the Trinity. Therefore, his death has infinite value, end quote. And I love the writings of Francis Schaeffer. I've been a huge student of his over the years. I've really, really appreciated I have a friend of mine when I uh, graduated with my bachelor's degree back in 1998. Uh, he bought me the complete set. Uh, I think it's 22 volumes, and, uh, and I've read through most of it. And, of course, his audio and video lectures are just phenomenal. Uh, but this quote here was taken from his book, Joshua and the Flow of Biblical History, Uh, page 206. So going on in the notes here, though Jesus suffered for our sins for only a few hours on the cross, his death had infinite and eternal value and saves forever those who trust in him as Savior. Now remember Christ, uh, remember we talked about last time we talked about the trials that went on from roughly midnight to about 6 a.m., Uh, He dealt with the mockings, the scourgings, the beatings, the crucifixion. He had to carry his cross to Golgotha, to the Hill of the Skull, and he was crucified at 9 a.m. And uh, and then there's a series of discussions from 9 to noon, and then from noon the sky grows dark. And during that time from noon to 3 is when uh, when most theologians recognize that Christ at that point was bearing our sin— at which time he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, were taken and were placed upon Christ, and it was at that time that he was judged, that he bore our sin upon the cross. So again, though Jesus suffered for our sins for only a few hours on the cross, his death had infinite and eternal value and saves forever those who trust in him as Savior. Norman Geisler, and here I'm quoting from his four-volume systematic theology. In fact, this is volume four. He says, quote, Being by nature the infinite God, Christ's death had infinite value, even though his suffering and death occurred in a finite amount of time. Time is not a mandatory measure of worth. Birth, for instance, happens over a relatively short span but produces something of extraordinary value. One death in limited time achieves something of limitless value for all eternity, end quote. And that was from uh, his uh, Systematic Theology, Volume 4, page 403. 
Uh, and then I have a quote here from Paul Inns from the Moody Handbook of Theology, which is another good book I recommend. It's a single volume set, but a good book for your library. He says, quote, at the heart of orthodox belief is the recognition that Christ died a substitutionary death to provide salvation for a lost humanity. If Jesus were only a man, he could not have died to save the world, but because of his deity, his death had infinite value whereby he could die for the entire world, end quote. And again, that was from the Moody Handbook of Theology, page 225. <clears throat> As a result of what Christ accomplished, there is great benefits for us who have trusted in him as our Savior. By his work on the cross, Christians become the recipients of great blessings, both in time and eternity. And though he blesses some Christians materially, his main focus is on giving us spiritual blessings, which are far better. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.3 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, end quote. Now, it is true that God does bless some Christians materially, and I think of the passage in 1 Timothy uh, 6, verses 17 through 19, uh, where Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now, he's talking to believers, he's talking to Christians, and God has, throughout history, blessed some people financially. He blessed Abraham. Abraham was very wealthy. Job was a very wealthy man. Jacob was a very wealthy man. Uh, Solomon, <laughs> a very wealthy man. And that's fine. And what God blesses, uh, you know, it's fine that we enjoy that wealth. Um, you know, that's, that's certainly something that God does give in time. But he says here, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, that is not to think too highly of themselves, nor or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, because riches come and go, and you can be rich one day and poor the next, and that's very uncertain. But where should their hope be? It should be on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, with all things to enjoy. And there he's talking about tangible things. And if God has blessed you materially, by all means enjoy those things, whether it's a home or a car or whatever it happens to be. But he says here, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So remember that when it comes to wealth, we are simply stewards of that which God has provided. And it's just like when my wife and I bought our home, when we were looking at a home, we had people driving from different parts of the Metroplex here in the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth area. And so when we looked at where everybody was at, we, we put a pin right in the middle, and uh, we thought, well, that'll have everybody driving equal distance because we were trying to be thoughtful of people's drive time because one person drives 10 minutes, another person drives 45 minutes, and, you know, that's, that's a strain. Not to mention we wanted a home that had a big enough uh, living area. This is not a big home. It's 1,800 square feet, but it was big enough that we thought, well, we could have people come to the home. We could uh, provide snacks, and we could do Bible study. So the home was intended to be used for God's glory and the edification of others because this is just a resource. This is just something we have for a moment in time. And it's what do you do with those resources? What do you do with that blessing that God gives you? And, uh, and so we have to think in terms of just being stewards of that which God provides. Francis Schaeffer, some years ago, as a side note, he, he preached a, a lesson, or he gave a, a lesson one time. It's actually part of a book, but it's called Trash Heap Lives. Trash Heap Lives. And what he talks about is how some people uh, invest themselves totally in material things. 
And in his lesson, he says, look, everything that you own in 100 years will probably be in a dump. <laughs> and so don't invest yourself into the things in this world. Invest yourself into things for, for the future. And there's not very many one-liner statements that I, that I like, but there is one that I think is true, and that is one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I think that statement is true. And so what we do in time affects our eternal destiny. And it determines what rewards we will receive in the eternal state. So again, Paul says, verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And notice by doing this, by people who give of their resources to help others, whether it's the poor, the widows, the orphans, the hungry, to help a church or maybe some ministry. I have people who bless me with gifts on occasion. It helps me cover ministry expenses. That's fine. Um, But he says that they should be generous and ready to share. But in doing so, you're actually investing in the future. You're actually investing in the eternal state. And so Paul says in verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So it not only has to do with their reputation and time, but it also has to do with their eternal rewards. Because there are rewards that we will get when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15 is quite clear on this. Um, But he says, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And so, you know, again, getting back to the point here, that though God does bless some Christians materially, really his main focus is on giving us spiritual blessings, which are far better. And again, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, Harold Honer, who wrote a wonderful single-volume commentary on Ephesians, and it was published a few, a few years before he died, uh, it's a really good work, but he also wrote the Ephesians commentary in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, that little two-volume set. And so I'm going to quote him here. He says, quote, Every spiritual blessing, eulogia, refers to every spiritual enrichment needed for the spiritual life. Since these benefits have already been bestowed on believers, they should not ask for them, but rather appropriate them by faith, end quote. Now, some of the spiritual blessings mentioned in Scripture are as follows. One, we are the special objects of his love. Now, the Bible teaches that God is love. And God loves because of who he is and not because of who who we are. Uh, His love is in no way predicated upon the beauty or worth of the object. uh, Because we are not, we were not, and are not lovely. We are sinners, and uh, we are unrighteous, and we are ungodly, and we are imperfect, and even after we're saved, we still have a sin nature, live in a fallen world, and still uh, make bad choices. We still sin even after salvation. But God is love, and God loves us. He cares about us. And by the way, God's love is a perfect love. It doesn't increase at one moment, doesn't decrease the next. He doesn't love us more one minute and love us next than this. Next, it's a perfect love. It's a constant love because God himself is constant. And um, now the love can take different forms because God, who can love us uh, very tenderly in a very compassionate way, is also the God who can spank us. Because Hebrews 12 says, he whom the Lord loves... He disciplines, (laughs) like a father, his own son. So the hand that comforts can also be the hand that discomforts. 
uh, to, to put it plainly. So, but God is love. And so we are the recipients of his love. Now, now people who reject Christ reject the love of God. Now, they abide by his common grace because common grace says that God causes the, the sun to shine on the, on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends rain on the, on, on the good and the evil. And that's just a common grace to everybody. But to be the special recipient of God's grace comes to those who receive Christ as Savior. And, of course, we think of Romans 5, 8, which says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, of course, this love was shown to us, again, not when we were sweet and lovely and charming, but this is the love of God. The love of God is born out of God's own character because God is love. Notice 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, here in the future, we're going to spend a whole evening and we're going to talk about propitiation. In fact, next week when we gather, we're going to jump into a, a series of word studies. And uh, propitiation is one of those theologically rich words that we are going to look at. But here, again, notice that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, we might say, the sacrifice that satisfies concerning our sins. But we are the special objects of God's love, and, uh, and so we enjoy that. Number two, we are forgiven all of our sins. We are forgiven all of our sins. Uh, now, Paul wrote in Colossians two thirteen and 14, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, notice, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the, to the cross." But he has forgiven us all of our transgressions. Ephesians 1 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Notice the forgiveness of our trespasses, and this according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his we're gonna spend the whole night talking about grace. I've already selected a series of words, and again, it's gonna be a good study. But the word forgiveness here translates the Greek noun aphesis. And when we think about forgiveness, we should think about releasing somebody from a debt uh, that they owe us or that we think they owe us. And so we're releasing them uh, from any obligation to pay the debt. And sometimes we forgive when other people ask us for it, and that's fine. And then there are times when we should forgive because of who we are. And I think of even when Christ was upon the cross and he prayed even for those who were crucifying and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, of course, for us, as uh, lesser beings, <laughs> uh, when we forgive, uh, sometimes that's in modeling the very love and the forgiveness that God himself extends because it's born out of our character and our integrity and not the beauty or worth of the object. Sometimes offering forgiveness is for our benefit uh, because uh, if we hold on to unforgiveness... Well, that's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't work out. <laughs> and it winds up creating something toxic within our own soul. But nonetheless, we have forgiveness of sins. Point number three, we are given eternal life. 
we are given eternal life. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and they will and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, when he says here, and I give, I've covered this before, but we'll hit it again. That's all right. The verb give here is the Greek verb didomi. Didomi. And the form of the verb is a present active indicative. Present tense means it is a right now truth. It is a right now truth. Eternal life is not what you can have. It's what you have at the moment of faith in Christ. Now, it finds its fullest expression when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless a right now truth. The active voice means that the subject produces the action of the verb. In this case, Jesus is the actor. I give. So he gives what is his to give. And so he gives us eternal life. And the indicative mood is simply declarative for a statement of fact. It is a fact that at the moment of faith in Christ, we are given eternal life and we will never perish. John 6, 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Um, we are also said to be made alive together with Christ. We are raised up, we are made alive together with him. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, and you're going to see some overlap here of terminology as we move through this. But it says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, notice, made us alive together with Christ, made us alive together with Christ. So this has to do with our with an identification truth in which we are said to be united with Christ, remember, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, because we are right now seated with Christ. We died with him, we were on the cross, we were buried with him, we were raised, and that's what baptism is. It's a picture. It's a picture of our union with Christ, that we went down with him in burial, we came up with him in, noon, in resurrection, uh, but we have also been uh, seated. We are now, right now, recognized as being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And these are what are called positional identification truths. These are truths that are a reality uh, based on what the Word of God reveals about us. And these are things that we come to grow into, that we learn to see ourselves from the divine perspective, that we no longer operate by human viewpoint, but we see ourselves from the divine perspective as the Word of God uh, frames us in our new relationship with Christ. And it's really quite profound uh, when you begin to really understand these things. Point number five, we are raised up and seated with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says that, we are raised, that, that God raised us up with him, raised us up with him, and notice, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are right now recognized as being raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And this has to do, again, with our new identity of being in Christ. We are also said to be the recipients of God's grace. Uh, John 1.16 says, For all of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. 
Uh, and that is quite a difficult phrase to translate, grace upon grace, uh, because the word upon, if I remember correctly, translates the Greek preposition anti, A-N-T-I, and it's the word that means in substitution for. And it's like the idea, grace in exchange for grace. And it's kind of a challenge because it's almost like if God gives you grace and you give it back to him, well, he gives you more grace. And so it's like grace piled upon grace. In fact, I think that's how the NIV tries to capture it. It's almost like grace piled on top of grace. Uh, And it's just basically you can't outdo God's grace. It's like the pie that gets bigger with every bite. Uh, It just, it's it's boundless. You just cannot um, get away from uh, God's grace. But we are the recipients of his grace. And of course, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It, that is our salvation, is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But again, this this grace mindset. And of course, God the Father is is called the God of all grace. Uh, The Spirit is called the Spirit of grace. Uh, In Hebrews 4.16, it is said that, uh, that the Father sits upon a throne of grace. I mean, it's, I mean, really, when you study grace, it is just really, it's really eye opening. And, uh, and, and, and it changes your perspective because when you really understand how much of a recipient you are of God's grace, it tends to flow out of you to be gracious to other people. You tend to be more, you tend to extend grace to other people, uh, whether they're cutting you off on the, people cut me off on the highway and I say grace to you, <laughs> you know, I, do I like that? No. D- did you just steal a place that wasn't yours? Sure. Um, but you know what God sees, and what am I going to do? Get angry about it? I mean, what's that going to accomplish, right? Uh, Proverbs nineteen eleven says it is to the glory of a man to overlook an offense. It is to the glory of a man to overlook an offense. So that's grace, you see. And so you let it go because of who you are and not because of the object. But again, as you begin to study grace and you really begin to enjoy grace and you understand it, you tend to be more gracious to other people. Now, I know some Christians, they're very, uh, they don't extend hardly any grace at all. And there's reasons for that. I've actually taught on that. So we may cover that when we get to the subject of grace here in a few weeks. Point number seven, we are created to perform good works. We are created to perform good works. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, so then... While we have opportunity, and that means that as long as we have breath in this life, while we have opportunity in this life, because listen, this life is a one and done deal, okay? There's no rehearsals, and so you only get one shot at it, so make the best of it. Make the best of this life, okay? While we have opportunity, let us do good. Notice to all people, to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. No one is in any way injured uh, by this verse. There is a selective goodness that we extend to those who are the members of the household of faith. But otherwise, we do grace, we do good to all people. Ephesians 2.10, And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, notice, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, God has created opportunities for us to do good works, and we don't have to to make these happen. Uh, We just have to see the opportunity and step into it and do what God wants us to do, whether that's helping uh, a widow, an orphan, whether that's helping somebody who who needs uh, some grace extended to them, whatever it happens to be that we look at those as opportunities. 
And, uh, and these are things that God prepared beforehand. Notice that, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And notice, instructing us, this is what the grace of God instructs us, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Verse 14 of Titus 2 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So you see, we have purpose in this life. We have value in this life because God has so structured our life that even future events, uh, God has already predetermined that there are certain people that we will meet. And listen, God is directing our life. It's called providence, providence. And it means that God is working sovereignly in his creation in such a way that he's moving the circumstances of life to direct you to encounter certain people, to encounter certain events, because he's, he's placing you at a time and a place so that you can represent him to a fallen world, that you can be a light in a dark place. And all you have to do is anticipate these things will happen because God has, has, has foreordained these things to happen. He's, he's, he's prepared all these things. And you just have to say, well, when's my next opportunity? You know, twice this week at work, I had somebody come to me. One lady wanted prayer, okay, for her daughter. You bet. I sat with her for a while. Another lady came to me, wanted some counsel on some family matters. I gave her some biblical counsel. But over the past year, I've had people come to me with the death of a loved one or some health issue or some financial issue. They wanted some biblical counsel. I, I wasn't looking for it, you know, but the opportunity came to me. And all I had to do was be ready to give the best answer, to pray with, uh, to uh, uh, show compassion for the person that was placed in front of me. And it, it's really quite relaxing because you don't have to make it happen. It just means you have to be ready when it appears. But see, this is where God has structured our life. And in this sense, we have a sense of purpose. We have, and the more you begin to understand your walk with the Lord, the more you will begin to develop a personal sense of destiny that is tied to the infinite personal creator God because you realize that he has not only called you to himself, you have responded positively, you have believed in Christ, and you are now a child of the living God. You're a brother to the, or sister to the king of kings and lord of lords. You've been transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. You're an ambassador for Christ. You are part of the royal family of God. Now, the problem is, is we spend too much of our time thinking like peasants, and we have to learn what are the protocols of the royal family of God, and we have to start acting uh, according to our new position position in Christ. That's how we need to behave. But it starts with that identity. You have to realize who you are. Paul, when he wrote his letter uh, to, I think it's to Timothy, but he talks about his being an ambassador in chains. An ambassador in chains. Now that's striking to me because Paul was incarcerated at the time. He was under house arrest uh, with a Roman soldier. But Paul understood that even though he was in chains, he was still an ambassador. He was just an ambassador in chains. But your identity doesn't go away, you see. And so who you are in Christ literally defines who you are uh, before God because that's the reality that we live in. But God has prepared these things for us to walk in. You see, he's already mapped out our life. We just have to be ready for those opportunities and walk in them. You see how this is a blessing? You see how God is, is, is blessing us and working through us? Point number eight, we are given freedom in Christ. 
Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but notice through love, serve one another. You see, now you were given freedom, but that means you have some responsibility here. Okay, and there are times where in the exercise of your freedom that you have to choose the hard right rather than the easy wrong. And so when you're faced with that situation, you have to choose to abide by honor. You have to choose to abide by integrity. You have to choose to abide by the virtues uh, of biblical Christianity. And, uh, And that means that you have to be a responsible steward with freedom. You see, freedom is a resource like anything. And it can be used for good purposes. It can be used for evil purposes. Uh, You know, it's just a resource like money. Time is a resource. All of these things are resources and really should be used optimally by the Christian for God's glory and for the edification of others. But there are some people, there are some people who turn their freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And they do. They do. They misuse their freedom. And Paul says, don't do that. He says, through love, serve one another. In other words, be a good steward of the freedom that God has given to you. Point number nine, we are given a spiritual gift. This is part of the blessing portfolio. We are given a spiritual gift to serve others. First uh, Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, you see, as each one has received a special gift, notice, employ it in serving one another. And We are to do this as good stewards. You see, again, we are stewards. We are managers. We really don't, we don't own anything. I mean, let's be honest. God gives it to us. He even gives us wisdom. He gives us the power to make wealth. Uh, These things are all blessings from the Lord. But we have to realize that we are just simply stewards of that which he has provided. I have a spiritual gift. It came to me at the age of eight when my grandmother led me to Christ. I believed in Christ. God gave me the gift to pastor teacher. And I didn't realize it until about, you know, 15, 18 years later, I finally realized what my spiritual gift was. And once I realized it, then I had to be responsible. I had to, I had to go to college. I had to learn languages of Hebrew and Greek and, and, uh, had to study history and philosophy and, and, um, and theology and had to study all these things that are relevant fields of study for uh, biblical exegesis and analysis. So you go in, you study these things, and you advance. Now, this is costly. It does cost quite a bit. Uh, thankfully, in November 2020, I was able to pay off my student loans and uh, to the tune of about $105,000. Uh, I hated that, but it is what it is. So, uh, But you invest yourself, and God provided me an opportunity for education and an opportunity to teach and to write. But once I knew what my spiritual gift was, I had a responsibility to develop that gift and to exercise it to my fullest potential. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't have anybody paying for college, so you do it yourself. But again, God provides grace. I had scholarships. I had people who gave money to the, to the, to the seminary that helped cover my expenses. Tyndale Theological Seminary, where I finished my doctorate. Uh, again, certain courses there were provided for me without charge. And this because the school was tremendously gracious to me. And again, I'm very blessed. God has opened those doors and uh, provided that opportunity. But when you receive a spiritual gift, you are to employ it in serving one another. Because listen, when a, when a, when a tree bears fruit, it's not for the tree's benefit. 
<laughs> it's always for the benefit of somebody else. So when you start living the spiritual life and that spiritual fruit starts manifesting in your life, then that will be for the benefit of other people will be for the benefit of other people. I think of in Romans 12, 6 through 8, where Paul says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. You see, there's a gift of service. Or he who teaches. You see, there's a gift of teaching. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Verse 8. Or he who exhorts, from the Greek verb parakaleo. Uh, which means to encourage others, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. So again, this is where God blesses somebody financially, and they give liberally. He who leads with diligence. There's a gift of leadership. I don't have the gift of leadership. You know, I have a gift of teacher. That's my gift. Uh, but there's a gift of leading, or with all diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, if you're going to show mercy to other people, do it with a smile on your face. All right? Um, and so there are these gifts that each of us are to employ, but this is part of our po- portfolio of spiritual blessings. Point number 10, we are children of God. You see, and this is mind-blowing to think that we are, in fact, children of God. Now, I wrote a book last year. I titled it Tares Among the Wheat, Living Righteously in a Fallen World, and there's a parable in Matthew 13 where Jesus divides the world bifurcates it into two groups of people. There are those that are wheat, who are children of God, and those that are tare, that are sons of the evil one. But everybody we meet is either a wheat or a tare. Everybody's either a believer or an unbeliever. And everybody we meet, by the way, will live forever. The question is, will they live forever in heaven or or forever in the lake of fire? But we are born into this world in Adam, and we are born into Satan's slave market of sin. That's where we are born, okay? And at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And at that moment, we then become children of God, children of God. First John 3, 1, see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we would be called what? Children of God and such we are. You see, it's a fact to be accepted by faith. It's not a feeling. Don't confuse it. Listen, I like my feelings. My feelings are wonderful. My feelings are part of what it means to be a human being. I love my feelings. My feelings are great. I got great. I got a great set of feelings. But sometimes they get in the way of my faith. And so this is where we are told to live by faith, okay? And Paul, God says, uh, the writer to Hebrews 10, 38, he says, but my righteous one, the Lord says, my righteous one shall live by faith, you see? So we are children of God and such we are, Galatians 3.26. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So again, this is part of your identity. Paul says in uh, Romans 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. He says we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now listen, an ambassador is a very, very high position. And it means that you are a royal representative sent by uh, the highest authority figure of one land. In this case, it would have been a king back in the day. But you are sent as a representative to a foreign country. You represent the king who sent you. Okay? And, uh, and it's a very, very high position. It's, it's, a, it's a position of dignity is what it is. But again, understanding our position in Christ, 
Point number 12, we are gifted with God's righteousness. We are gifted with, with God's righteousness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him, that's the Father made the Son, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might, that, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul writes in Philippians 3.9, he says that I may be found in him. And there's that prepositional phrase, in him. Uh, that is in Christ. Notice, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. This is this is not a, a righteousness that one produces by uh, by adherence to a moral standard or to a law code. But notice that that is that righteousness which is through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice the last clause here: the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of... It's the, you see, it's over in Romans 5.17, Paul calls it the gift of righteousness. This is the very gift of righteousness that God himself gives and deposits to our account. Romans 4, verses 3 through 5 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that word credited translates the Greek verb logizomai, and it's an old boring accounting term. It just simply means that you credit something to someone's account. It's an accounting term is what it is. And what it means is that God takes his very righteousness and deposits it to our account, such that when God looks down from heaven, he sees his righteousness in you. He sees his righteousness in you. And that's why he calls it the gift of righteousness in Romans 5.17. In Romans 4.4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But notice verse 5. But to the one who does not work, okay, but does what? But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. So that is where we get that gift of righteousness. So this is part of the blessings that we get, that we possess as a gift the very righteousness of God. Point number 13, we are said to be justified before God. That is, we are declared right. The very righteousness of God is the basis upon which you are declared right before God. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3, 24 and 28, being justified as a gift, not by works, you see, we are justified as a gift. This is the gift of God. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16, and knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But see, to be justified means that you are declared just in the eyes of God, that when God sees you, he can declare you just, not because of any works that you do, but as a gift of his righteousness to you, he can declare you just. And this is, this is part of that identification truth. You see, and this is something that we will talk about in future lessons. It's part of who we are. It's our identity. And when we come to understand our identity in Christ, 
I'm telling you, it'll shift your whole worldview. It'll shift your whole evaluation of yourself because you will see yourself as God sees you. And, uh, and again, it will produce within you a personal sense of destiny that is tied to the infinite personal creator God. Point number 14, we have peace with God, uh, Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. This is relational peace. And on what basis do we have relational peace? Not because we work for it, you see. We have been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Point number 15, we will never be condemned. Now, some of these are positive. Some, some of these are negatives. It's like two sides of a coin, okay? Uh, but we will never be condemned. Romans, excuse me, John three eighteen. He who believes in him, uh, that is in Christ, is not judged. So we will never face judgment. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, you see how that comes in, and does not come into judgment. He does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we will never face the lake of fire. It's not an option for us. Now, if we turn to a life of sin, and that's possible, okay, that is possible. And if somebody's that dumb that they're going to turn to a life of sin, well, they can expect divine discipline uh, in time, which can even get to the point of being so severe that it can even lead to death. I think of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 two of Aaron's sons, who brought strange fire into the tabernacle, and God himself sent out fire and destroyed them. Well, that's the sin unto death. You see, Uzzah reached out and touched the ark. That's a no-no. That's a sin unto death. The Lord struck him dead. Okay? Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, lied to the Holy Spirit. God zapped him. Okay, they died. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, talks about how uh, some uh, of the Christians at Corinth, he said, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You see, some believers had been put to death because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So the sinning believer will, uh, when they die, they immediately go to heaven. But they will suffer throughout this life divine discipline and they will forfeit rewards in the eternal state by pursuing a life of sin in this world. But no condemnation. Point number 16, we are given a citizenship in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is right now in heaven. We have a citizenship in heaven. Heaven is our rightful place to be. So when we go there, we are going to a place to which we right now hold citizenship. Again, this is part of an identification truth. It is a reality with regard to our new identity in Christ. Uh, point number 17, we are transferred to the kingdom of Christ. Colossians 1.13 says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. You see, there it is. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. That's Satan's domain. And we were transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
We were transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. And 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, And walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see how that dovetails? Dovetails very nicely, doesn't it? You're a child of God. You're in the kingdom of God. You're a brother or sister to the king of kings and lord of lords. Act like it. Let your performance be that of your position. Your position is in Christ. And therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, You're a child of God. Act like it. Okay? Carry yourself with dignity. Act with integrity. Abide by the virtues that represent the highest and best in biblical Christianity. Point number 18. We are all saints in Christ Jesus. You see, we are saints by calling. We are saints in Christ Jesus. Again, that prepositional phrase, in Christo, in Christ. Uh, uh, So we are saints. We are saints because we are said to be in Christ. So that is our identity. Ephesians 2.19 says, and we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You see, so we are saints in Christ Jesus. Now, being a saint and acting like a saint, well, you know, sometimes one doesn't always follow the other. It should, okay, but uh, we are saints. Saint is just simply a synonym for a Christian is what it means. Point number 19, we, we, are, we are made to be priests to God. Revelation 1.6 says he has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and Father. You see, that is what we are. We are priests. All Christians are priests to God. And so you represent uh, God to others as an ambassador, and you represent others to God as a priest. You, you come before his throne of grace. You pray for others. Uh, you, you bring them, you lift them up before the Lord. But you function as a priest. When you execute 1 John 1, 9, you are functioning as a priest. That is part of your priestly function because you are confessing your own sin to the Lord, you see. And so God forgives you, but this is part of your priestly function. So again, this is part of that identity. It's part of that uh, package of blessings. Point number 20, we are said to be God's chosen. Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And part of that identity should lead to behavior. Notice that we would be holy and blameless before him. Colossians 3.12 says as those who have been chosen of God. You see, you are chosen of God. Again, what a tremendous blessing. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and blameless, uh, holy and beloved, notice he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, let your performance be that of your position. Okay? Live it out. Point number 21, we are the recipients of his faithfulness. Uh, Hebrews 13, 5 says, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see, God has integrity and God does not lie. He cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18 says it is impossible for God to lie. And why is it impossible for God to lie? Because when God makes a promise, God never breaks his promise. You see, God has integrity. Now, people might break their promises, and a promise is only as good or as strong as the person who makes it. And when God makes a promise, he always keeps his word. He says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And you may say, oh, well, I don't feel your presence. Feelings have nothing to do with it. It's a fact. It is the truth of scripture. Live by faith. Uh, Listen, again, appreciate your feelings, but don't let them guide you. Live by faith. That's how we are to live. 
2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, and by the way there, the word if might better be translated since uh, on occasion because we are faithless, right? But if we are faithless, notice he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, and we are, he remains faithful. What a contrast. And why is he faithful? Because he cannot deny himself. You see, God uh, always keeps his promises. Number 22, we have been called to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, and walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. You see, again, our performance should be that of our position. And so we have been called to walk in this newness of life. This is the calling that we have. And one of the things I love is I know what my marching orders are. I know what the Word of God calls me to. I know how I am to live because the Word of God is very clear. Uh, on these matters. Now, the Bible doesn't answer every question. It doesn't tell me, you know, what kind of shoes to wear, what kind of colored car to drive. I mean, there's some freedom there uh, for you to kind of select what you want. Uh, But nonetheless, what the Bible does reveal, where it does direct, it's very straightforward. And so I love getting into the Word because it very clearly lays out my marching orders. And so I know how I am to conduct myself. It may not always be easy. I mean, listen, love your enemies. That's, That's tough. I mean, let's be honest, right? And feelings, man, they're way out of the way on that one. That's a total faith walk right there. But I know what my marching orders are, and you have to choose the hard right rather than the easy wrong when you're faced with those situations. Number 23, and I'm probably going to go a few minutes over, so bear with me tonight. Number 23, we are members of the church, the body of Christ. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function... So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of it. We are part of a body that is the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, and 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But this is part of our identity again as part of belonging to the body of Christ. Number 24, we are said to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So again, a tremendous blessing that the Spirit of God dwells within us. And whereas in the Old Testament, people went to the temple, uh, as Christians, our body is the temple. And so it is the place where the Spirit resides. Uh, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You see, again, this is part of our blessing package that God gives to us. Uh, we are enabled to walk with God. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by means of the Spirit. And Galatians 5.25, Since we live by the Spirit, let us also 
walk by the Spirit. Now, I'm going to spend some time uh, here in the months ahead. Once we get through the end of the study, I'm going to talk about phase two salvation, which is our sanctification. And we are going to spend weeks talking about the spiritual life. How do we advance to maturity? We're going to, we're going to dig into that. Uh, so things I'm touching on here, we will unpack in future lessons. Point number 27, we are empowered to live godly. We are empowered to live godly. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So we have been granted His divine power, uh, as it, which has been granted to us uh, as it relates to life and godliness. We have the means to pursue the life of righteousness. Number 28, we have scripture to train us in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. You see the scripture itself. Pasagrafe theopneustos is what the Greek says. All scripture. And the word scripture there, graphe, refers to the written word. The written word. All scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable. Notice, for teaching. Uh, because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. So you have to be taught how to live the Christian life. It doesn't just come to you. It's not like a bolt of lightning strikes you and you say, oh, I now I get it. It's not how it works. You have to get into the word. You have to study under good Bible teachers who can unpack this stuff. And, uh, and so you have to dig in. But the word of God is profitable to us for teaching for reproof, because we need to be shown where we're wrong. But it's not enough to show somebody where they're wrong, but also to provide correction. So the Word of God says you're wrong here, uh, and this is what's correct. And notice the last clause there, for training in righteousness. You see, so we have the Word of God, which uh, trains us in how to live uh, the righteous life. And this is experiential righteousness. This is not imputed righteousness. That's a gift. This is your walk with the Lord so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Number 29, we are guaranteed a new home in heaven. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also." You see, and that's the place where we have citizenship status. Remember that. And when we go there, we go there because we have rightful re uh, citizenship status. And this has been given to us even before we get there. <laughs> you see, uh, so you have a ticket and, uh, and heaven is our guaranteed home. You see, we can have confidence. If somebody were to say, were you died, if you die today, would you go to heaven? Oh, yeah. How do you know? Because I know the one in whom I have believed. I have trusted in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died upon a cross and bore my sins and was placed in a grave and rose again on the third day, never to die again. And he promised me forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the gift of righteousness and many other blessings. And I know where I'm going and I know why I'm going because I know the one in whom I have believed for my salvation. So see, for me, it's very straightforward. I know some people, oh, I don't know, maybe I hope so. No, <laughs> listen. The more you study the word, the more confident you get in these things. Point number 30, we are guaranteed resurrection bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Listen, I'm looking forward to my resurrection body. I'm 56 and my body's breaking down. They say it's not the years, but the mileage. I think I got a lot of high mileage on my body, Uh, but I'm feeling it. Neuropathy, arthritis. I mean, come on, it's just hitting me, Uh, but that's all right. I know what my future holds. It's bright and it's glorious. And I know where I'm going to go and I know what kind of body I'm going to have. It's going to be a nice body, a good body, free from all this uh, pain and stuff that's going on now. So uh, praise God. I'm looking forward to that new body. Uh, Point number 31, we're almost done. Bear with me a few more minutes. Uh, We have special access to God's throne of grace. Special access to God's throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us draw near. Notice, with confidence. With confidence. To what? To the throne of grace. It is not a throne of judgment. It is not a throne of judgment. That's past. We have passed out of death into life. We, uh, We will never face judgment. Because we are children of God, we have the gift of righteousness, we have eternal life, there's no condemnation. When we come before God's throne, it is not a throne of judgment, it is, in fact, a throne of grace. And we are to come confidently before the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every morning when I drive into work, I've got a 22 to 25 minute drive, and I pray the whole time. I pray for my country. I pray for my president, vice president, the house, the senate. I pray for the spiritual leaders across this land, whether they be in churches or homes or businesses or the military or the academic institutions or sports. I pray for leaders across this land. I pray for my business, I pray for my church, I pray for my friends, I pray for my wife, I pray for my dog. I love my dog. I even pray for my dog. How's that? But when I start off my prayer, this is the verse that comes to mind. I say, Father, good morning. I've confessed my sins. I know I'm in right standing with you. Now I'm going to come boldly before your throne of grace. Because you've told me it's a throne of grace. You told me to come confidently. So here I am. So let's talk about what's going on and what I'd like to see. And of course, I know you're sovereign. So at the end of the day, I can request. It's your decision. I trust your judgment. Give me wisdom. Give me humility that I might walk in your will, that I see what's going on and operate by wisdom and so on. But this is a verse that I bring with me when I start my discussion with God. Lastly, number 32 And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. I just hit a lot of the main points. There's others that you could add to this. But lastly, number 32, we will be glorified in eternity. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And Philippians 3, 21 says, For Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exercise of the power that he has that he has even to subject all things to himself in quote so we will have a future glorified body uh not this thing that we have that's breaking down at the moment <laughs> uh, but we're looking forward to that i know i am uh, and i assume everybody else is too who's listening All right, well, that is going to close out this section, and I know I hit you with a lot of material. There's a lot to unpack here. This is probably a very dense lesson, 
and I've thrown a lot out there, so you can go back and listen to it again as a podcast or a video or however you want to uh, reprocess the material. But I pack it in there, and so you can unpack it at a future time. And some of this, by the way, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is failing me again. Some of this, by the way, we, we will unpack in the days ahead. We're going to talk about propitiation. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about imputed righteousness. We're going to talk about all these things. So a lot of what I've hit here in condensed form, thank you, sir, you the man, is something that I will unpack in future lessons. So if you didn't get it this time around, hold on. We'll catch it in future lessons. Just bear with me, okay? Okay. All right. Now. Let's open it up to Q&A. Do we have any questions over tonight's study? Any questions? Anybody here in the house? (coughs) Jim. Okay. Uh, because we possess a sinful nature, because the sin nature is... If we have this power, how can we just can't exercise it out of us and not have those demons? Well, because it's not... It's, it, well, uh, yes. <laughs> and that is something we'll talk about in the future as well uh, with, with future lessons. When it comes to our being born again and being in our position in Christ, it is something that we have accessible to us as we learn several things. One is we learn the Word of God because we can't live what we don't know. Two, we have to learn our position in Christ. That identification truth is very, very important. And a lot of people don't study it. It's not commonly taught, but you find it, it's replete. It's all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the New Testament. So it becomes one of those things that we have to learn about and then by faith walk in. And as Christians, the more that we advance spiritually, we will sin less. Uh, I don't find anything in the Bible that teaches that we will ever attain sinlessness, that is absolute perfection in this life. But we will, as we advance spiritually, sin less. And so we will advance. And, uh, and I know that I have laid, laid aside many of my practices from back in the day when I was in drugs and homeless and suicidal back in the 80s and all that crazy time. And I'm 98% better than I was then. I'm not free from it. Um, but even when we do sin, God has provided a way for us to rebound and to get back into fellowship with him, 1 John 1, 9. So it's never the will of God that we sin, but it is his will that when we sin, that we handle it in a biblical way. So he's made provision for that, you see. So the issue for me as a Christian is to log as much time in the spirit as I can. But at the moment of faith in Christ, it is not the will of God Uh, that we be plucked out of this world. I mean, that would be nice. You come to faith in Christ and immediately God says, okay, I'm taking you to heaven now. But then there'd be nobody to share the gospel, you see. So it is the will of God that we live in this world and we face temptation on three fronts, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Two of those are external, the world and Satan. One is internal, the flesh. And the flesh is that proclivity to sin. And it's, it's weakened, but it's not removed. And, and we do not have to yield to it. Now, the pressure can be quite great, especially for those who have dealt with addiction. My heart goes out to them. I understand that. Uh, but it is one of those things that, that it teaches us humility. It teaches us just how dependent we are on Christ and upon God and his word and the spirit to guide us because we can't do it ourselves. 
because we are still weakened creatures living in a fallen world with fallen bodies. And so that is something that we have to live with. You know, Paul had his thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times for God to take it away. And God said, no dice. And then, um, um, <clears throat> one other question, if I can jump in for maybe somebody else. And actually, you kind of answered this as I kept listening. Um, grace upon grace. And I was thinking to myself, how do we give grace to God? And then when you mentioned giving grace to others, in a sense, is giving grace to God. Yes, it becomes a conduit. becomes a conduit because the more that we receive, the more that we, we give. I think of the passage... We give it to him, we're giving it to others. And in a sense, by giving it to others, we are giving it to him. Sure. Yeah, I would go with that. Um, and you think about the passage in First John 4 where he says, We love because he first loved us. Okay, so our love is a response, okay, to his love. But we love, and why do we, we love? love others, not just right, ourselves. but love goes both ways for us in that moment. We love others because he first loved us. So once we begin to receive and enjoy and bask in the love of God, it naturally flows out of us to others, but it also naturally flows back to God. We, we, we also love him. We also express our love for him. We worship him. Well, we thank him. Right, I would not, I, yeah, right. I'm with you, I'll have to think more on that one. But when it comes to the grace upon grace, I think it's just, he, his, his grace is just inexhaustible. He just keeps giving us grace. And um, I know when I sin, and I do, whether it's mental attitude, verbal, sins of the flesh, sins of omission, commission, pick, pick your category, it's a, it's a big field. Uh, but as soon as I get through sinning, I know I'm still breathing. The sun is still shining and my life is still going on. I think it's Psalm 103, verse 10. I think it's Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10, where David says, You have not dealt with me according to my sins, nor rewarded me according to my iniquities. That's a fact. <laughs> uh, God treats us in grace. And he gives us time to confess that sin, to own it, and to come back into fellowship. Um, but if we're honest, we'll admit that God is very gracious with us. He's very slow to anger. He's very patient. He's very kind. He's very quick to forgive. Um, he's, he will discipline us if, it, if it's warranted. But otherwise, he's very gracious and slow to anger. That's typically the character of God. So, good questions. Anybody else have any? Anybody else have any other questions? No? You got another one, Jim? Um, something I was talking with the same guy where I sent the email about. Oh, yeah, the second Samuel, um, yeah. It's about heaven, in a sense. Okay. And so he prepares a place for us. And so when we go to heaven, when heaven is finalized, say 3,000 years from now, all mm. the wars are over, is it going to be on earth or is it going to be somewhere else? And if it's going to be earth, are we going to be on earth permanently? Well, that yes, sir. Can you repeat the question? Because some can't hear. Jim. Yeah. So the question is, uh, when heaven is going to be prepared for us, uh, will it he be? A house for us. Right. He's going to prepare a house for us, is and that's that something we will enjoy. Right. Is it going to be on heaven, or is it going to be on earth? Well, we know that per Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And uh, for us as believers, we are promised that it will be in heaven. Now we will have access to the earth. Uh, but I think that our primary place of residence will, in fact, be heaven. 
Um, now maybe we can, you know, transfer back and forth. Maybe we'll have a residence in Iowa or something, you know, to uh, spend the summer vacations in or something, you know. I mean, there's some stuff we just don't know, and the Bible doesn't doesn't unpack that in minute detail, you know. Um, so it's hard to be certain on that. Uh, so I don't know that I could really give a definitive answer on that because I'm not sure that there is one. Uh, and as soon as I say that, somebody will find an answer and send it to me. So please, if you know it, please send it on. I'll be glad for that. My thoughts on that were daydreaming was, you know, almost like time travel. Oh, I wish I was at the beach and then you're at the beach. <clears throat> oh, yeah, I could really like, enjoy being in the mountains and... Well, and I'm, I'm kind of inclined with that, too, because you think of Christ in resurrection body. He could suddenly appear in a room and then disappear. And he's everywhere. And, and, yeah, and he seems to just be bouncing around from spot to spot. Well, if that's indicative of our resurrection bodies, then yes, we can appear in one place, appear at another. If we decide we want to go on a trip through the galaxy and explore God's marvelous new universe, uh, you know, we'll have the means to do that. You know, space travel uh, would be available to us. Uh, why not? So... Again, it's hard to be indicative, but uh, uh, it, I don't think there's anything that would exclude that. Anyway, good, good questions, good questions. All right, anybody else? Nope. All right. Well, yeah, Josie, go ahead. It's just uh, what you just said and, and the brother who asked the question. It's funny that you mentioned that because... <clears throat> I've been watching the, the DC and Marvel movies a lot lately, and so it made me want to dig deeper and learn more about the spiritual realm. And I was like, if they can make these like movies so intense and seem so real, you know, about the power of good and evil, I'm like, I'm surely God is bigger than this movie. So it was just making me laugh on the side. Yeah, no, that's that's a good analogy. I'm glad I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing what can come out of the imagination of people. And certainly Hollywood has some really uh, gifted people whose imaginations can be really quite amazing. And some of those art stories, uh, shows are entertaining. Um, but yes, I think that when it comes to what we will experience in the future, I think with God, I think it'll be much more so. So I, I agree with you, Josie, on that one. Yeah. Good comment. All right, anybody else have any comments, questions? All right, well, let's wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And I know we went through some uh, intense material this evening, looking at a lot of scripture, addressing a lot of issues. And these are things that we will unpack in the days ahead. Uh, Father, you are so good and so loving and so kind, and you have done so much for us, and you have blessed us in so many ways it just simply staggers the imagination to even begin to try to grasp these things, that your love for us is so profound, and you have revealed these things to us in your word and through your son who came into this world and who lived an absolutely righteous life and who went to a cross and died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life and a future and a hope and blessings that we could never, never earn by ourselves, and this because you are gracious and merciful and kind. Thank you, Father. You are so wonderful, and we are the fortunate beneficiaries of all that you have blessed us with. Help us to understand these things and to identify ourselves as those who are in Christ and to see our new position as part of your family, and then to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Father, we thank you. We pray that we will be challenged by these things in the days ahead. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.